Congregation of the Lord in Monarch. The most important question that we will need to answer in our life is our relationship to Jesus. What have you done with Jesus? What do you believe about Him? And how have you responded to the gospel about Him? It is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the only Savior. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved than the name Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew is a gospel that is written, we understand, primarily to the covenant audience, the Jewish people of the time, and in distinction from the Gospel of John and Mark, for instance, that are written, written to uh, the Gentile population, this particular Gospel is written to the people who are of the covenant community, the Jewish people, who have the mark of, of the covenant on them, who have heard the Word of God. And the Gospel is written in order to show them that the king of the kingdom that they have long been waiting for, the kingdom of God, is among them, that the king has come. And it's, you'll notice that the theme of kingdom runs through the gospel. But what an embarrassment it is if we have been expecting someone for a long time and they show up and we ignore them or don't even acknowledge them. And the Bible says about the people of the covenant in Jesus' time, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. This is a, an account in the Bible that shows the distinction between the way a Gentile has responded to the news about Jesus in distinction from a covenant person, the covenant people. So Jesus is a great Savior. He has come not only for the Jews, and indeed many of them were converted throughout His ministry, and especially if we think of the day of Pentecost, but it's indicated already in this time that He came also for the Gentiles. And there are so many instances in the gospel accounts that People from among the Gentiles have been drawn to Jesus, have been, been by the Holy Spirit given faith in Jesus, and been brought into the kingdom. So we are going to hear about a great Savior, the great Savior who has come into the world in order to save sinners. And we're going to hear this morning about a great faith in a great Savior the character of the true faith, the cause of Jesus' marveling here, and the caution for covenant people. Well, I imagine that when I announce the first point as being a great faith, uh, I announce the point as the great faith in, in this great Savior, that there are people even today who would maybe say, well, that leaves me out. If you're going to be talking about a great faith, 
Well, sometimes I wonder if I have any faith at all. My faith is so small and so weak. Uh, Pastor, that, that leaves me out. Count me out because I might as well check out because that's, that's not for me if great faith is what is required. Well, you are exactly the person that needs to listen because this is an encouragement for those who would exclude themselves. And the Lord shows what He calls a great faith. So let us listen then to this. And what is the character of this faith that Jesus calls a great faith? Well, it is, it is a faith that, first of all, is marked by belief in the great things of the gospel, a faith in the most plain things of the gospel, a faith in the most important things of the gospel. Now, I know that we can sometimes stumble out of certain parts of the Scripture and certain truths that are proclaimed that we say, well, that's hard to understand, that's hard to get. But the thing is that we must believe the main things and the plain things. And the main things are plain, and the plain things are the main things. And so this man who, about whom we are talking, he has heard some great truths about the Lord Jesus, and he embraced those great truths and believed them. Now, we are told that this man is a centurion. That is, he is, maybe we could call him a captain of a portion of the Roman army, a captain of from 80 to 100 soldiers, and he would be responsible for them, maybe equivalent to a sergeant, I guess, of a smaller uh, battalion. And this man was stationed by the authorities in the city of Capernaum, a town on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, a town that was also on, on, on a trade route that ran through this area, a route that came from the east, and there were many things that were traded and came through. So it would be a, an area that would be strategic to place some soldiers to keep order in this uh, town and also to collect custom as things were brought in. And so this man was a Roman centurion stationed in Capernaum. And he was not a harsh captain or, or centurion. He was a man with some feeling. As we compare the passages, then we realize that this man had a heart for, for his soldiers, but also for his servants. And he had one servant that was special to him. He had a disease that's called palsy here, and we don't know exactly what it was, but uh, I imagine it might be something like uh, a disease that, that paralyzes something like uh, ALS, for instance, or uh, some similar disease. It, uh, it was something that, that no one could heal. They had no real remedy for it. And this man is described as having been grievously tormented. The servant of the centurion was very ill, and we're helped by Dr. Luke because Dr. Luke tells us in the parallel passage, as I mentioned in Luke 7, that this man 
a certain, in verse 2 of chapter 7 of Luke, a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So he was so ill and the disease had progressed so much that it not only tormented him, but he was at the point of death. It was at the point where, where all hope might be lost concerning uh, the prospect of any kind of healing. And so this man, at that time, this centurion heard about things about Jesus. We read in in verse 3 of of Luke 7, when he heard of Jesus, he said. What what an amazing response we see here. The, The Holy Spirit planted in his heart an immediate response to the news about Jesus. He heard about Jesus healing people, and and Jesus would touch people and they would be healed. We read that in the context. He would speak and people would be healed. These are amazing things that he heard about this Jesus. This centurion must have been someone who was acquainted with the, the Scriptures. He had a heart for the Jewish people and for their religion to some extent. He respected it. And he must have known about the promise that there was going to be a Messiah coming for the Jewish people and that uh, they were anticipating His coming with, with a great desire. And so when he heard about Jesus, this man embraced the great truths that he heard about Jesus. Can that be said of us? That when we hear about Jesus and when we read of him in the Bible, that we read it and we grasp it and we believe it. Maybe we don't comprehend everything about it, but our approach is God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. It was this kind of childlike, this kind of of simple and yet sincere faith that was being stirred in his heart. It was a, a faith in the great things that he heard about Jesus that gave him hope. We might be aware of all the the historical truths of the Scripture? But do we really believe? And does this embracing of the truths of Scripture give us hope, hope for our souls and hope for others as well? Well, this man embraced the great truths of the Scriptures, and it gave him hope, not only for him, well, maybe even less for himself, but certainly hope about this servant of his. And so he sent for Jesus. He heard of Jesus, and he sent. So that is the first mark of this faith of the, of the Roman centurion that we read about here. A second mark of faith that we find evidenced in this man is low views of himself. Embracing the great truths about Jesus, he has low views of himself. These views of Jesus, that these things about Jesus he heard, it gave him this idea that Jesus is a marvelous master in the Jewish nation. 
not just a great teacher, but one with great power. The Romans, in their mythology, they had, they had some stories about uh, the, the gods and about their relationship uh, to humans and the marvelous things that they were supposedly have done. But this he heard about Jesus, and he believed it. He embraced it. It gave him hope, but it made him feel unworthy himself. Now, Luke tells us something that fills out the story. We read in in Matthew that this man had a servant who was sick and uh, that he had sent for Jesus, and Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But we are told a little more. In connection with this man's low views of himself, we need to understand that it is, it is distinguished from the higher views of him that the Jewish friends had. He sent these men among the Jews. Notice that in Luke. We read in verse 4, uh, rather verse 3 we'll start. He sent unto him the elders of the Jews beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. Now, he explains the reason for this, that this was a Jewish Savior, the Savior that's come for the Jews, this Messiah. And so, he thought, I will ask my friends if maybe they will ask Jesus to come. We read, when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. This man had responded to the knowledge of the Jewish religion and his sympathy for the people, his his respect for them in such a way that he had built a synagogue, he had done uh, things that evidence his love for their nation. And so the Jewish leaders affected by the the theology of works, thought, this is the way we will recommend this man to Jesus. We will speak for him, and we will tell Jesus the good things that he did. And then surely Jesus will be moved by this man and his good works and have sympathy on him. And there are people today who think that that's the way that you would, would recommend yourself to the Lord. If you would come to the gate of heaven, they think, then if the Lord would ask, well, why should I let you into my heaven? Then then they think, well, what I will tell him is uh, I've done this good thing, and I've done the other good thing. I've given money to the church, and I've helped in the Christian school projects, and I've, I've done this and that, and, I've, and they think that on the basis of their good works, they could recommend themselves to the Lord. But that's not the way that the gospel tells us we are going to be saved. The Apostle Paul makes it evidently clear, and many passages of Scripture teach us, that we cannot justify ourselves by our works. But that's the way they thought they would would recommend him to Jesus. And so they used that. But notice in Luke Then Jesus went with them, 
And when he was not now far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. He himself does not feel worthy. Notice what it says in verse 4. They say he is worthy. He says, I am not worthy. He has low views of himself. I'm not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. And that is part of the distinction of faith, isn't it? In the life of those who have come to see what a great God we have, how holy he is, and how he reveals himself in his law as requiring that we would love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and love our neighbor as ourself. And as we see these commandments laid out for us, we are convicted that we have come short in every one of them, and that we are sinners, that we are unworthy. He has low views of himself. And yet, he has hope because he believes the great things about Jesus. And he makes overtures to, to Jesus to come and help. I'm not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof. And he explains next why he sent the Jews to ask in his stead. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy, we read in Luke chapter 7, verse 7, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. So he didn't feel that he was even worthy to come near to Jesus, let alone that Jesus could come into his house. He has low views of himself. He does not feel that this Messiah would include him. He feels excluded. He excludes himself. What an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit works in him. These marks, these, and in this way, draws him to the Savior. And when grace is at work in us, when grace convicts us of sin, we know our unworthiness, that we are not worthy. And so also if we consider when anticipating the Lord's Supper, are we worthy? Some people confuse the language of that statement, that he that eateth and drinketh unworthily. Well, that does not mean that you're disqualified if you feel unworthy. No, in fact, if you feel worthy, then that would disqualify you because Jesus is a Savior for the lost. He is a Savior for the unrighteous. He's a Savior for the unworthy. We notice that in this particular passage that we have evidence here of of his embracing the great truths of Jesus so that it gives him hope that he has low views of himself. And then we would wonder, why would he still 
Go to Jesus for help. Well, notice the third mark we see here. He has great thoughts of Christ. He believes the great things about Jesus and believes great things concerning the person and dignity and deity of Jesus Christ. How could he have gone to Jesus? What motivated him? Well, it was not anything about himself that motivated him. He did not go to Jesus because he felt that he had merited anything. He goes to Jesus because Jesus, he believes, is a great Savior. He is able to do these great things that he has heard about him. And he is able to do these things for unworthy people also. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. And so how important it is that we believe the great things of Jesus, to have great thoughts of him. Notice that what the centurion says here, but speak the word and my servant shall be healed. In Luke, Luke tells us as well that it is in the singular. That's significant. Not speak some words, come and, and, and recite a, a long incantation with all kinds of ceremonial expressions. No. Speak only one word. Just one word. Speak the word, we read in Matthew. Notice that in Luke, he says, but say in a word, in one word. What an amazing expression of who he believed Jesus is. What great thoughts he had of Christ. Just one word, Jesus, and that will do it. He must believe concerning Jesus that he is none other than the Son of God. That he is indeed God in the flesh. Because God in the beginning said, let there be light, and there was light. And no one can speak in such a way as to produce this kind of marvelous thing. God said, let there be light. He spoke and it was done, we read in Psalm 33. He commanded and it stood fast. Jesus created in the beginning, all things. Yes, he is the one of whom John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. God in the beginning spoke, and by his Word he created things. The expression of this man's faith indicates that he believes Jesus is a man, not merely of earthly authority, but a man of divine, with divine authority who is able to do such a great thing even with one word. And it caused Jesus to marvel. Do you believe great things 
about Jesus? Do you have great thoughts of him? Well, let's look a little closer about what it caused Jesus to marvel. It is c- concerning the manner in which the man spoke about this one word. He went on to explain, well, I'm a, a centurion, I have, I'm a man under authority. Notice he says, I'm a man under authority. Well, if you want to exercise authority, you first need to know how to submit to authority. If you don't know how to be a servant, you certainly are not capable of being a good master. And so this man is a man who knows how to submit to authority. But he also knows how to exercise his authority, and apparently he did so in a way that was compassionate, considerate, and just. But he also knows that in a position of authority, you do not, you should not have to repeat yourself. Children, do, do your parents have to repeat themselves? They say, go and clean your room before supper. Once should be enough because they are in authority over you. That's what authority is. Authority is the right to command and receive submission. And so, in this case, he realizes that just as he has to obey his superiors, his boss, so his servants have to obey him. And it is very important when it concerns soldiers in the army that they do what the captain or the sergeant says. And so he understands authority, and he explains it. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And notice the emphasis here on on just singular expressions. Go, come, do this, and he does it. This is what caused Jesus to marvel. This man had an understanding of authority. Now, of course, he exercised authority on a human level. He was able to command his servants, and these men had a will, and they had the ability, and so they did that. But now, turn that into what he is asking of Jesus. He is asking of Jesus There you are, Jesus, my servants, my representatives, the Jews. They have come and they have pleaded my case. There you are on the road. Just speak one word from that distant location. He trusts that Jesus is aware of who he is, what the situation is, He trusts that Jesus is of such divine authority and such power that he could speak a word from a distance, and the servant in Capernaum, in that particular household, in that particular room, in that bed, that servant would be healed. Amazing, the great faith in Jesus. This is what causes Jesus to marvel 
the greatness of this man's faith that he believed these things so elementary, so simply believing these great things about Jesus. And so we need to take that home and we need to apply that and embrace that. You cannot have too great a thought of Jesus. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we would ask, that we would dare to ask or think. He is so amazing in the greatness of His power. But not only that, in the greatness of His mercy. He is so great in His his mercy, in His compassion, in His kindness, so willing to show mercy to those who ask that we cannot ask too great a thing. The Puritans used to put it this way. They would say, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. And what did they mean by that? Well, if they would mean that if you would come to a king who owns everything in the country and is very rich and very powerful and you could finally get your way to the throne of the king and then you would, you would say, could I have a little piece of bread? That implication is if you ask just a little thing, after having come to the king, you're insulting him. If you're coming to a king, bring big requests. Ask for large things. You see, we are sometimes so intimidated by the fact that that we are sinners and God is holy that we, we do not dare ask very much. But we are encouraged to have great thoughts of Jesus, great thoughts of His mercy. Indeed, we are unworthy. Indeed, we, we would have to join with those who might, that woman who would say, uh, even the dogs eat from the, the crumbs of the Master's table. Indeed, that was a statement of her, her humility. But this man believes great things about Jesus in addition to his low thoughts of himself. And this man then teaches us not to have small thoughts of Jesus, away with our low thoughts of Jesus. Yes, but someone says, you do not know, Pastor, how much I have sinned. I have committed so many sins in my life. I have sinned against His patience. I have sinned against His mercy. I have gone on in a path of sin so long. The pile of my sin is so great that I hardly dare ask the Lord to forgive it. But remember, Jesus is so great that His grace is always greater than all your sin. No sin can be so great, but He can forgive it. No sinner can be so heinous in his sin, but Jesus is able to save him from the bondage of his sin. Have great thoughts of Jesus. And 
So we see here, Jesus marveled at this man's faith. He marveled that this man would say such a thing about him. And so let us, let us trust the Lord and let us believe in him. And let us believe that when we come to church, that even one word from the sermon, one word from the Scriptures, whether it is repent or come or turn or believe, pray, trust, one word is able to save a sinner. Do you believe that? Do you believe that concerning Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is able to save you where you are in the depths of your sin? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He assures you of that. All his mercy, all his miracles demonstrate that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would rather turn and live. Don't doubt it. Believe it. You say, I'm not worthy. Yes, but he is worthy of your faith. He is worthy of your praise. He is worthy of your great thoughts of him. Praise him by trusting in him and believing his promises. What a blessing and a comfort it is. Because as we believe in him, in the great things of God, feeling our great need of him and trusting his great power and mercy, he will say to us also, be it to you according to your faith. That is an encouragement to believe. But there is here also, and I need to mention that because it's in the same passage of Scripture, there is also a warning or a caution to the covenant community. And notice what Jesus says here. I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. Well, imagine the situation. Imagine that someone comes in from outside, and they have never been in a church, and they come and they sit down in the pew here in the monarch Reformed Church here, and that they listen to a sermon, and they hear great things about Jesus, that they immediately believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they go out and go home rejoicing that their soul is saved. Imagine if that would happen here and that the majority of us would walk out having rejected everything we have heard and despised it. Would we not say, how can that be? What an embarrassment. Would Jesus not also marvel as he sees something like that happening? 
that in Israel, in the covenant community, he went here and there and everywhere and so many places, especially since that Bread of Life sermon. Yes, his popularity went up. He had a crowd of 5,000 men, excluding the counting of children and women in that, that crowd. Yes, but then he pressed the point to the hearts and many left him and followed him no longer. And his popularity is going down as far as the nation of Israel is concerned, as far as the leadership is concerned. And people are leaving him. They are disobeying the gospel. They are not trusting in him. He went to Nazareth, his own hometown, and he preached the fulfillment of Scripture is in your ears this day. And they took him to the side of the cliff, and they were going to throw him over the cliff. They excommunicated him from their synagogue. He came to his own. His own received him not. And here a Roman centurion believes the great things of Jesus. Because he heard, yes, faith comes by hearing. And how many times have we heard? Have we believed? Do we trust in this Jesus? We hear many encouraging things today from the East. Yes, we hear from the voice of the martyrs about Christians believing in in the Lord. We, we hear in Iran, people are being converted from the Muslim religion to Christianity. We hear of it in the, in the Mideast Reformed Fellowship uh, newsletters. And COA, if you get the news reports from Come Over and Help, we hear that there are great numbers that are hungering for the Word of God in, in the eastern parts of Europe while the West is closing the church doors. What, what sad things. Does it not cause you to marvel what the Lord is doing in our time? Well, Jesus says in, in our text passage, many will come. Many will come from the East and the West and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Who are these children of the kingdom then? Well, they are covenant people. They are people who were born under the means of grace, born in, in the fellowship of the congregations of Israel and raised under the the proclamation of the Word. And in our time as well, there are people who are members of a covenant congregation. They have been baptized. They have made a profession of faith. But they, the Lord Jesus says, in the end of the day, do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And in the end, they will be cast out. What a, a, what a moving thing. And the Lord Jesus sees this, that, that his Father is anticipating what will happen after the day of Pentecost, where the gospel will go into all the world. After he has been crucified, he has been rejected. And the, the gospel yet will go into all the world, and many will embrace them from east and west and 
And yet many of the children of the covenant, children of the families who had professed to welcome the kingdom of God and belong to the kingdom, they thought, but cast out. How this should make us sad. Because this is the possibility also among us. Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. So how will we go? How will we go home? Believing the great things of Jesus? Knowing we are unworthy, but trusting in Jesus and and believing in him for salvation? Well, that is how we need to respond. With embracing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, I'm unworthy, Lord, but thy grace is great. Thy power is great. Greater even than all my sin. And then the Lord will say, if we believe in him, go your way, because it will be to you according to your faith. And he will be glorified, because he has worked in you to will and do of his good pleasure. May God be praised as we trust in him. Amen. Let us sing in response to the message, Psalter number 221, Psalter 221, all of these stanzas.